being forward in our study in Hebrews, this I believe is our this is our fourth study now in this epistle, and so we are uh, now looking again. I want to begin in verse one again and read through verse nine. That will be our text for this evening. Uh, but we're going to, of course, review up into up to verse four specifically, and then five and following. Be looking into those verses this evening as we have time. Look with me in verse one, please. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they." For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. As I mentioned to you in previous studies up to this point, of course, the theme of the book of Hebrews is that Christ is better. That is the entire emphasis of the epistle. As we looked at the overview of the book, if you recall with me, we saw that uh, this is the emphasis con- uh, consistently taught through the book, and, and that this letter, of course, was written to uh, those. Jews who were converted over, of course, to uh, Christianity, those who had been born again or were professing faith in Christ. And as I mentioned last week, one of the issues that they had, and Paul deals with this throughout Galatians and uh, throughout Romans, I mean, he deals with this throughout Corinthians, it, you know, even dealing with the, the Greeks are dealing with the, uh, the Corinthian Gentile believers, yet still he, he references and brings in, of course, the circumcision and uncircumcision, the Jews being the circumcision and such. And so in, in teaching through his epistles, Paul makes it clear that the Jews had a terrible time with uh, carrying their religious baggage and being steeped in their religion, and so they were uh, prone to go back to things, and Paul, or, or the Hebrew writer specifically, deals with that in this epistle of Hebrews. And so the emphasis throughout the epistle is that Christ is better. He's the fulfillment of all the old covenant. We looked at that somewhat last week. And that in this new covenant, the everlasting covenant that God has made between the Father and the Son, that we are now benefactors of this covenant. And so now we are, uh, we are the ones who benefit from this, but the covenant is not between God and men, it's between God and himself through, and his Son. And so Christ is better. He's brought to pass this new covenant. He is the testator of the new covenant, the Scripture says, or of the Testament, and that he is the one who died, as we know, in the flesh, that the Testament may be inactivated, if you will, or enacted. And so we know that throughout the teaching, he is, he is better than the angels. He begins by stating that. Uh, God has spoken in a better manner through his son. He begins the beginning of the verses of the epistle by stating that fact. He is a better high priest, of course. He is a better sacrifice. He is just better, a better mediator. He, he is better all the way around. And so this is the theme of the entirety of the epistle. Now, the writer begins the letter declaring again, the superiority of Jesus as God communicated to man through him in contrast with God communicating to men by the prophets. Look again at verse 1. God, 
who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. So God spoke at sundry times. This simply means that the Lord had spoken in many portions. It was a, again, progressive revelation. And I don't want to belabor the point, but let me say again to you that it's important to recognize that in, all through the Old Testament, as God spoke in different ways, that's what's being said here, he spoke in, in many portions, and, and also he goes on to say in different ways, but in the many portions in which God spoke at different times, if you will, in different ways, we know that it was progressive. God was progressively revealing himself, progressively revealing his plan. And so we see that also by the next statement when it says that God spoke in diverse manners. And the phrase diverse manners simply means in many ways. So in many portions, in many ways. Again, I remind you, for instance, of the Lord speaking uh, to uh, Moses uh, by the burning bush, if you recall, through the burning bush. And he spoke in different ways, but also ultimately by the prophets, of course, under the fathers. And that's what he goes on to say in, in concluding this verse that God spoke in times past under the fathers by the prophets. So God used the prophets to proclaim his truth. Now remember, again, the difference between a prophet and a priest. The prophet represented God to man, and the priest represented man to God. So God would speak through the prophets, God to man, and then the priest would come with the atonement through the Old Testament tabernacle and offering the sacrifice, the blood of the sacrifice, which of course was God rep- man representing being represented to God through man. But we know, of course, ultimately, and and Hebrews makes this clear also, that Jesus is prophet, priest, and he's king. He is all of these. So he's not just one of them. He's all of them, and he is the perfect of all of this, the fulfillment. And so God used the prophets to proclaim his truth. In verse 2, we read, Hath in these last days God, of course, spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So now he's saying, in contrast to God speaking through the prophets, he now has spoken to us directly to us by his son. And this is complete revelation again. And I, want to, I don't want to, to confuse you, but let me clarify by stating that God, the word of God is the revelation of God, the revelation of his very son, the Lord Jesus. And we have in God's word, through Christ, the complete revelation of God to man as he has chosen to reveal himself. And so again, it's not the complete revelation of God. The scriptures themselves could not define and ultimately give definition to God. They, it, they can't, even the scriptures. They're, they wouldn't be capable of that because God is bigger than that. Remember what John said even concerning in his, uh, in his gospel, uh, concerning the works of Christ. He said that they, they were so many and so great that all the books in the world would not be able to hold testimony to the work of God through Christ. And so that, if that's true concerning his work, surely it's true concerning his person. And so the fact of the matter is that God has revealed himself to man in a complete revelation as he has so chosen to, but it's no longer this progressive revelation. Now, an important truth of that is this, that we be reminded as well, as I've mentioned previously, that even in our prayers, if we're approaching God's word to study the word of God, to read the word of God, and our intentions may be such, and God knows, and he makes sense out of our nonsense, there's no doubt about that. But yet, and scripture even references that in our prayer, that is, but yet, we, we should not be praying ignorantly. We should not be praying, God, reveal to me your truth. We should be praying, God, illuminate my heart, my mind, my understanding to your revealed truth. Because God has already spoken. Let me tell you what that, the difference here in, that, in those two prayers or requests. One is asking God to continue to progressively reveal something that's already revealed. The other is to say, Lord, you've revealed all that you will reveal 
but the problem is not you've not revealed or you've not spoken. The problem is we are not hearing or we are not seeing. And so it's asking God to remove all the barriers that would, we would put up, all that would hinder us in our understanding of God's word, in what he has said, what he has taught, what he has revealed, and that we would have an understanding then of the truth of Christ and the provision of God in Christ. Verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. The word being in its grammatical use indicates a continuous state. So again, Jesus radiates God the Father's, God the Father's glory to humanity. Remember, we see the, the, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the Scripture says. So the revelation of God's glory is in his Son. And he is the brightness of his glory, he says, the express image of his person. Again, I'm reminded of John 1 and Colossians 1 here. And By the way, John 1, 1 through 3, as I've mentioned, and Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 are very much akin to one another. They parallel each other. Uh, remember John, of course, chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God, and it goes on to explain how there's nothing made that was, nothing that exists was, can't exist without the fact that God made it, that Christ made it. And so then verse 14, as you're aware, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and so we know that that's speaking of Christ. Then in chapter uh, 1 of Hebrews, in verses 1 through 3, specifically now 3, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. Colossians 1 as well tells us, as you recall, as we've studied through that on Sunday mornings, that Christ is the very image of the invisible God. So that which cannot be seen, a God who cannot physically, visibly be seen, yet he has manifested himself in his Son. And again, the interesting thing about the term that's used, image, again, references that, that truth of, um, as Steve had mentioned, icon. And the icon, you know, even like as we understand an icon today, it, it holds within it everything that it represents. And so Christ is the perfect representation of God the Father because he is one with the Father, as he himself declared to be. And so as that express image and the image of the invisible God and being the very word which became flesh, which was manifested in the flesh in John 1, we understand that it is Christ alone that radiates God the Father's glory to humanity. Then verse 4, being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, although the statement that Jesus is so much better as we previously have seen, though it refers to his superiority over the angels, the created beings, heavenly creatures that God created, the statement is setting the stage for the entirety uh, of the emphasis of this epistle, as I mentioned last week. So not only is Christ better, but because he is better, he offers and gives to us better things through a better covenant based on better promises. We see this in Hebrews 8, 6, but now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. And so because Christ is better, then everything associated with Christ is better. Everything he provides is better. And, and the participle being, when it says, verse 4, being made so much better than angels, the participle being in verse 4 refers to the manifestation of Christ in the flesh, and specifically his glorified body, as we're told in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Let me explain that to you again before we move forward. Because these verses, if they're not looked at properly in their context, they can be confusing or use overlook the significance of what actually is being stated. For instance, when it says, being made so much better than the angels. Well, that presents a real problem if you don't understand the context. Because Jesus Christ was not created. He was not made. 
And so it's not saying that Jesus Christ was a created being, but rather he was made so much better than the angels and he obtained this inheritance, which is a more excellent name than they. Well, how did he obtain this name? Again, this is talking about, go to Philippians 2, the, what, what we know as the Carmen Christi or the hymn to Christ. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and you'll see where the scriptures clearly express and explain that Jesus humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. But then the scripture says, but God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. And so it's not saying, again, let me refer back to John 1. I don't want to lose you here. Please follow, track, track with me, okay? John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And who's the Word? The Word became flesh, remember? In John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so this Word is the Lord Jesus Christ, obviously. But in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. The Word was God. But then it says, being made so much better than the angels. Jesus was before the angels were, obviously. So how is it he was made better than the angels? Well, Philippians 2, put the pieces together. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he humbled himself. He took on the form and likeness of flesh, of, of sinful flesh, though he, he was never sinful, but yet he's sinless, but yet he took on that form of sinful flesh, this flesh in which we live. He literally became man in the flesh, and he died and was raised again by God the Father and exalted, now in a glorified body. And again, the importance of that is that the Lord Jesus Christ, who prior to his incarnation, prior to him becoming flesh, never possessed flesh in eternity prior to that. But now, for an eternity that ever exists on forward, he is in a glorified flesh, which again means that he relates to us and that we now have a connection with the Father because of the Lord Jesus Christ, his Son, who came in the flesh. And so this is of tremendous importance, and it's also important in understanding what the Hebrew writer is saying when he says being made so much better than the angels. The Lord Jesus Christ, the person of Christ, was never made anything more than he's ever been. In fact, in, in Philippians, in the Carmen Christi again, it even says, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, yet made himself of no reputation, humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. Are you hearing this? Equal with God, but yet humbling himself. But God then highly exalted him. Exalted him from what position? Not from his personhood or in his personhood, but exalted him in a glorified flesh and now given him a name. And remember, the word name here is not talking about J-E-S-U-S. The, the, word, the letters put together to form the word Jesus. That's not the name. And that's a great misunderstanding too, even when it comes to prayer, as you're aware. And I don't want to digress here, but I want to mention this just to help to elaborate the point or the truth. And that is that many people go to scriptures that say something where Jesus himself said, if you, if you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Remember that? He said, you ask amiss, too, did he not? And then John says that we know we pray, if we pray according to his will, he heareth us. And so when people 
hear the name Jesus or they mention the name Jesus, they often look at that as though this is some some mystical, magical word that they can use to get things they want. And after all, God said, oh, Jesus himself said, if you'll ask in my name, then, then I will do it. But that's not at all what's being referenced here. It's not saying that we pray and say the word Jesus now to get what we want. That is not at all what Scripture is teaching. But rather, the word name carries with it the, the uh, it references and carries with it the association and identity of power and authority. And so the point is that we, if we ask anything in his will, in his authority, that he is already determined to do, he will do it. I've often said to you, one of the key things about prayer is realizing this simple truth, that prayer is never intended as though, as though God is here and here we are and we're praying. If we pray hard enough, long enough, then all of a sudden God's going to come do what we want. No, prayer is that God is here and we're not there. And as we pray, we are saying, nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. And we are aligning ourselves under his will, under his authority, under his power, not expecting to change God, but recognizing that it is God who will change us and change even that which we desire. And so the name Jesus, a name that is above every name, this, this inheritance he obtained a more excellent, a superior name than they, than the angels, is talking about the authority and power of the Lord Jesus Christ as the exalted one, anointed by God the Father, exalted in a glorified body, a risen glorified flesh, which now is seated above all and reigns supreme as Lord over all. That is what's being stated here. Not that the name Jesus, the letters put together, is a greater name or title than anyone else. No, it's saying that the authority and power of this Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, in the glorified flesh is now exalted. He humbled himself to the point of mankind lower than the angels, as Scripture tells us in multiple cases. And he lowered himself, humbled himself below the angels themselves. And God has highly exalted him now above all in a glorified flesh. So last week I mentioned that verse 5, if you recall, is key to understanding the writer's intent when declaring in verse 4 that he, Jesus, hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For Verse 5 reads, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I quoted last week James and Fawcett Brown regarding what they said concerning this passage, their comments. Um, they make a, just a brief statement here that Christ has fourfold right to the title Son of God. First, by generation as the begotten of God. Second, by commission as sent by God. Third, by resurrection as the first begotten of the dead. And then fourth, by actual possession as heir of all. And so he has fourfold right title as the Son of God. And I previously mentioned that the first portion of this verse, Thou art my Son, verse 5, this day have I begotten thee, is a reference to Psalms 2.7. Psalms 2.7 says, I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. However, the latter portion of that verse, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son, in verse 5, is a reference to 2 Samuel 7.14. The immediate context of this passage in 2 Samuel 7.14 is in reference to Solomon, King Solomon, Nonetheless, the writer of Hebrews references this passage in a 
messianic manner as a messianic prophecy. Think at Samuel 7, 12 through 15. I don't want to read just 14 because I want to see you to see the context here. And when thy days be fulfilled, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, this is the Lord speaking to David concerning his seed, which is Solomon. He shall build a house for, for my name. Who built, the, who built the, the temple? Solomon. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. Here's a promise concerning Solomon, the son of David, to David concerning Solomon, saying, oh, I will chasten him, I will correct him, but I will not remove my mercy from him. I will establish his kingdom forever. Now we know the kingdom of David actually is established forever, not only through Solomon, but ultimately established and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is his kingdom that is forever and ever. And he is referenced as David in the New Testament, which is not talking about David, Jesse's son, but it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is the son of David, meaning the lineage of David and the fulfillment of all that David was a type or shadow of in the Old Testament. And so the risen Jesus, as we're being told here in verse 5, is superior to the angels. And although Jesus humbled himself below that of his creation, as I mentioned, the Heavenly Father has exalted him above all. So when he says, I, He will be, or thou art my son, for unto which the angels said he at any time. Now, there is, there is a conversation and discussion concerning the angels generally spoken of, the holy angels, as being referenced as the sons of God, if you will, uh, in passages or certain references made that could, can, could pertain to that. But yet, this passage is very clear in what it is stating, regardless of that. It is stating to which of the angels, to which, singular, which one of them did he ever say, you are my son? None of them. Even if there's reference made to them as the sons of God, it's not saying they are the son of God. And that is the distinction that's being made in verse 5. Verse 6 and verse 7. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels he saith, who maketh his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, it's interesting. The Hebrew writer here refers to the Psalms multiple times in these first verses of this chapter. As a matter of fact, we see once again, he references the Psalms. Psalms 97, 6 and 7. The heavens declare his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. Confounded be all they that serve graven images, that boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all ye gods. God's refers here to supernatural beings, not referencing some false gods, but rather literally supernatural beings that may exist. Worship him, worship God, worship the only true God, all of you supernatural, all of you created beings. Also in Psalm 104, verses 1 through 5, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, thou art very great, thou art clothed with honor and majesty, who covers thyself with light as with a garment, who stretcheth out the heavens like a curtain, who layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters, who maketh the clouds his chariot, who walketh upon the wings of the wind. Now listen to verse 4. This is a reference here made in verses 6 and 7. Who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers a flaming fire, who laid the foundations of the earth that it should not be removed forever. So there's no angel, obviously, that is worthy of worship, but notice 
that we are being told that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is worthy of all worship, including that of the angels themselves. Look at verse 6 of Hebrews again, Hebrews 1. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, the first begotten being Christ, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. So Christ is worthy of the worship of all created beings. And even in an earthly form, even prior to a glorified flesh, even as one who humbled himself lower than the angels which he created, he alone is still worthy of their worship, even in the form of man, because he is the Son of God. That goes back to verse 5, thou art my son. To which of the angels did God ever say, God the Father ever say, you are my son? None of them. But he does make that statement concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son is worthy of all worship, including that of the angels. It is as well important to see that he makes his his angels spirits. The Son is begotten of the Father, sent of and from the Father. He is eternal, as we've already seen, whereas the angels are made of God, they are created beings. They were created, whereas Christ is not created. Even though he manifested himself in the flesh, that was not a created being. That was a manifestation of he who has always been. He is the Son of God. He is one with the Father as part of the triune Godhead. <laughs> Look, I, 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 I confess, we were dealing with some of this in theology class last night. I confess to you very clearly and, and readily that these are the things that your, make your mind go, right? These are things beyond our comprehension, beyond our full understanding. But Christ is eternal. Not a created being, but one manifested through the incarnation. In fact, Jesus was made lower than the angels, meaning the incarnation, humbled himself, that he might then be exalted as the risen Lord in a glorified body. Look at verses 8 and 9. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now let's stop for a moment here. But unto the Son, who's the Son? Who is the one speaking? God the Father, unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God. So God the Father speaks to his Son as God. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. As with the previous verses, the writer again references the Psalms, Psalms 45, 6, and 7. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. This is a quote from Psalm 45. But what is so wonderful about these references to the Psalms is the truth that we see Christ revealed again throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Even in the Psalms, we see that be the case. The kingdom of our God and the kingdom of Christ is an eternal kingdom. Let me remind you of what the book of Revelation says in chapter 11, verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
Again, I remind you of this truth as we've been discovering throughout the book of Colossians, that we must never forget that we do not make Jesus preeminent. The Father has declared Him preeminent. We do not make Him Lord. The Father has declared Him Lord. We do not make Him the Son of God. He is the Son of God. So we don't make Jesus anything. You will never make Christ anything. He is who He is. Again, the question just all comes down to this. Will we bow in submission to the truth of who He's been declared to be? Or will we reject that truth? Or dismiss that truth in this lifetime. We don't make him Lord, he is Lord. You don't make him Savior, he is Savior. You don't, and, and look, this is so important. I hope you see this. And, and this, this really dismisses the, all the arguments and all of the, when I say dismisses them, it, it is refutation against the arguments of, well, you know, against, for instance, quote-unquote religion. I use that term Often loosely, but in this case, I'm talking about having a relationship with God, okay, through Christ. And the arguments and refutation against such would be, well, that's good for you. No, hear me, please. It's not just that Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is Lord. It's not just that he is my Savior. He is Savior. It's not just that I acknowledge him as creator. He is creator. The point is, it's not that, that this is good for me. No, this is the reality of who he is. And so, for all mankind, this is the truth. Jesus is Lord. He is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. He is the Savior of mankind. And He rules and reigns supreme. So, what you do with that does not change the truth of who He is or what He does. But, how men respond to that truth or humble themselves to that truth, by the working of God's Spirit, sure does change everything about us. We see his preeminence referred to in two areas within this verse. It says his throne is forever. Although the Father exalted the glorified Christ above all, he's always been preeminent as declared by the Father. The Father raised Jesus from the dead, that he as the risen Savior would have the preeminence in his glorified flesh. Let me remind you of this truth. It is not that Jesus died and rose again that he might gain victory over death, hell, and the grave. That is a misconception there. He didn't need to gain victory over hell, death, and the grave. We were the ones bound to that, not him. So the fact that he died and rose again, claiming that victory over death, hell, and the grave was not for himself. He didn't need to do that. It was for us. He gained our victory. As a matter of fact, as as I've said many times, had he not already been victor... He could not have gained the victory on our behalf. Had he not had power over death, hell, and the grave already, he would have never been able to claim that for us. So it was not some victory he gained for himself. No, it was a declaration of victory on our behalf through his flesh for sinful flesh. Colossians 1, 18 and 19. You're familiar with these verses, or should be. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, Christ. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. So he, his throne is forever. Number two, he is anointed above his fellows, it says. The word fellows means companion. Whether this refers to those who have been anointed priests or or mankind as a whole, 
since he did come to identify and redeem men, it's still very clear that he is preeminent above all. In the Old Testament, the prophets would anoint the man who was to be king of Israel. Remember Samuel and David? Do you remember that account? And Samuel went to David, and also Samuel and the anointing of Saul as well. But Samuel went to David, if you recall. And, and the Lord even says to Samuel that he's not to look on the outward appearance, remember? And Samuel just discusses this, for it's not about who's the tallest and who's the manliest and who's the broadest shoulders. He says, no, the Lord looks on the heart, not on the outward appearance. And Samuel anointed David, if you recall. And in that time in which the prophets would anoint the kings, we remember this, of course, with David specifically. And it wasn't, however, what is being stated here is that it wasn't a political seat for which one campaigned, but it was an appointed position. David didn't campaign to become king. David didn't go out and take polls and, and start campaigns and and rallying votes in order to become king. No, God appointed David king. He's the one who set David up in this position. And here you find in this text in verse, uh, let's see, verse 7, I'm sorry, verse 9 of Hebrews 1, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. So he is anointed above all. And by the way, we as well have been made companions or partakers of this divine nature in Christ. In, in 2 Peter 1, 4, we're told, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. This becomes a reality by the knowledge of him, of God, through Christ. Ephesians 4, 7, Paul stated, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So we have received the grace of God, specifically in relation to our service as believers in Christ of edification. We have been given the grace of God according to the measure of the gift of Christ. But we are made partakers of the divine nature, and it is Christ, this divine nature, who is the very personification of what we talk about concerning the divine nature. John 3, 34 and 35, listen to what John wrote. He said, for he whom God has sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hand. So while we as followers of Christ have been given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ, yet Christ, God did not give him the Spirit by measure, but rather the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So again, He is the personification of the divine nature of God. But we've been made companions. We've been made partners or partakers of this divine nature through God's provision for us in Christ. In other words, let me just summarize it like this for you, very simply. We have, we are, and we will be only because Christ is. And that kind of verse really summarizes it for us. We are, we have, and we will be only because Christ is. And when I say Christ is, that's a statement of eternality. It's not saying because he once was or because he will be or will become. No, it's because he is. Recall with me throughout the Gospels, if you recall, even when Jesus was brought, when they, I've mentioned this a few weeks back, when they brought him, uh, when they came to take him out of the garden, if you recall, and Judas was betraying him, 
And in our translation, it actually says, and these words are italicized, or the one word, the pronoun is italicized, with an intent to help clarify the statement. But really, it's not clarifying the statement. It actually causes us to view it a little differently, I think we should in many cases. The fact of the matter is, when they came to take Jesus, and they questioned him, and he made this statement, he simply said, Art thou the Christ? Are you the one? He said, I am. Now, our translation says, I am he. And that's true. It's not that that's wrong. That's true. But that's not what was actually stated. He said, I am. And when he said, I am, the scripture says they fell backward because they were in the power, in the presence of the power of the great I am. The same one who said to Moses, I am that I am. The same one who said, I am the door. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the water. I am the bread. I am the manna. I am the shepherd. This same I am is the Jesus who says, I am, and they fall backwards. So we see here that we have, we are, and we will be only because Christ is. Because he is, and he's unchanging. By the way, it's interesting because the scripture goes on to tell us, of course, um, I, I, let's, let's, in, in light of that, let's look at verses 10 and 11. I don't mean to go here, but just because of what we're talking about here and what it leads into. And thou, Lord, in the beginning, hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. Now look at what he says in verse 11. They shall perish, but thou remainest. You see what that's saying? All this will perish, but guess what? He is. I am. Jesus Christ is better. He is the only begotten Son of God. It is only because He is the only begotten Son of God that we can be the children of God, having been made partakers with Him as He humbled Himself and identified with humanity that we might be reconciled to our Heavenly Father. Christ is better. I hope you don't get tired of hearing that because you're going to be hearing it throughout this entire study of Hebrews because it totally is emphasizing this truth throughout the entirety of the text, the entirety of the epistle. We are being constantly reminded Jesus is better and then we're being shown how he is better. He's better than the angels. Here's the point. He's better than the angels in that he was risen in a glorified body, exalted above all, and he is the only one that the Lord has ever said, the Father has ever said, thou art my son, my begotten son, only begotten son. John 3, 16, everybody knows this verse, of course, like everyone knows this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He is the only begotten son of the Father. We are the children of God. We, we've been given grace according to the measure of Christ. But God did not give him the spirit by measure. He is the fullness of the Godhead body. Again, hear me. Christ is better. And he's made better than his fellows. (laughs) We as well are his fellows. But he is much better than we are. Much greater than we are. In fact, again, we have, we are, and we will be only because he is. Because he is better. Let's pray. Father, thank you.